0: Everyone, you are listening to the New Discourses podcast. I am James Lindsay. We're going to do something a little bit different today. For those of you who are big fans and supporters of New Discourses, you will of course know that I have been creating a encyclopedia translations from the Wokish. I called it, leaning on the idea of translations from the Elvish from J.R. R. Tolkien, uh, trying to be cute, I guess. The point of this encyclopedia, which is housed on new discourses, is specifically to show the abuses of language that are inherent in the abuses of power that the woke or critical social justice movement uses. And so there are lots of entries on there. I think there are over 500, maybe almost 600 that I intend to do by some point or another. And I've done well over 100, probably over 150 so far. And I've never really pointed directly at the encyclopedia here on the podcast before, but I think that the topic of my most recent entry is so important to understand, given what's going on in the world today with the woke movement, that I actually want to just read, with my own commentary added and probably discovery of a few typos, the newest entry on the Social Justice Encyclopedia that I'm keeping on New Discourses, I should say critical social justice encyclopedia, um, which is for neo-Marxism. The concept of neo-Marxism has to be understood because now we have the big debate entering the public consciousness. Is wokeness or is critical race theory Marxism? And we've had an increasing number of videos surfacing, for example, where we do have people, for for example, the Black Lives Matter uh, founder Patrice Cullors, if I've said that correctly, came out and you know a year ago or so, and said proudly that they're trained Marxists. In another video that surfaced recently, through some excellent investigative reporting uh, and digging, uh, we see her proud of the fact that her work has been compared to um, Mao's Little Red Book and her own book at the the. the forward. That book is written by Angela Davis, who was a student of Herbert Marcuse. Herbert Marcuse was a neo-Marxist in the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, and Angela Davis was one of his students, the black feminist Angela Davis. Um, Angela Davis is also one of five people featured in Ibram Kendi's book, Stamped from the Beginning, uh, which is the one that precedes how to be an anti-racist. And so Neo-Marxism is absolutely relevant to what's going on. We've just seen very recently, when I'm, rec- as when I'm recording this video surfacing, where you have a professor at Villanova explaining that critical race theory is in fact grounded in Marxism, and that it has a spiritual element to it. And so it's getting harder and harder to deny that critical race theory has something to do with Marxism, which of course people like myself have been arguing for a couple of years in various ways. We've been trying to distinguish between... Um, Marxism and critical race theory, for example, or critical social justice more broadly in a recent podcast I did here on new discourses i where i where I investigated the influence the central influence really of one of Marx's precursors, who's g w f hegel um I talked about how well, you can actually think of what wokeness is as a series of Hegelian dialectical syntheses. That went from Hegel's original idea, and then Marx synthesized it in one way to bring into dialectical materialism, and that's what we would call Marxism. And then that was again dialectically synthesized into a new form that would be neo-Marxism, and that's where critical theory and cultural Marxism uh, have their home. And then this met up against its kind of antithesis in postmodernism, and kind of very late critical theories. So for example, the later writings, the 1960s writings that you see coming from people like Theodore Adorno, where you have now a positive dialectic in neo-Marxism and a negative dialectic from these guys, postmodernists, the deconstruction is like a negative dialectic or uh, Theodore Adorno's idea of negative dialectic, which he called it explicitly. And th- that can be synthesized together, fused together to, to create wokeness, critical social justice, which is what we call applied postmodernism. The application is Actually, neo Marxism. This is what Jordan Peterson correctly called postmodern neo Marxism uh, for many years as well. So, neo Marxism has to be understood if we want to understand the present movement. I would say that the correct way to put it is that wokeness is neo Marxism with postmodern characteristics. Though, having just reread, and for those of you who don't know, there is a young adult simplification or adaptation of cynical theories intended to come out this fall. I guess this is the first time anybody's announced that unless Helen's done so on her Twitter feed. And, um, in that, uh, adaptation, you know, hearkening back to cynical theories, Helen's argument every time I run into it for why wokeness is fundamentally more postmodern than neo-Marxist, which she and I disagree about that point now, um, is so persuasive and it has to do with the way that that wokeness conceives of power and the ordering of society, which is in fact more postmodern than it is neo-Marxist. But either way, neo-Marxism with postmodern characteristics um, is uh, a good way to put it. And a formal way to put it would actually be that it is the social constructivism at the heart of the postmodern project and the critical theory of the neo-Marxist project taken into dialectical synthesis to create critical constructivism, which is the formal name for the operating system in wokeness and critical social justice. So what I wanted to do then with this little, I don't want to drag out this introduction, just neo-Marxism is incredibly important. If you want to understand wokeness, if you want to understand the critical social justice ideology, it's going to help unravel the relationship between, um, Marxism and critical race theory for people, which I think is very important right now. It's very near people's minds. It's a point of argument and debate. Uh, It would be true, as I recently published on New Discourses, to say that critical race theory is more Marxist than not, but it is fundamentally different from Marxism in key ways. And so I thought just reading with some extra commentary the entry that I just wrote for Neo-Marxism for the Social Justice Encyclopedia on New Discourses would be very helpful. Now, you won't get the full benefit of in this podcast, you don't get the full benefit of reading the encyclopedia, which is that I take all the other entries. Every time I use a word that has a specialized meaning under the critical social justice ideology in the encyclopedia, I link to the entry for that specialized meaning. So you could easily be reading about neo-Marxism and you could see that it's related somehow to cultural Marxism and then You can go to the Cultural Marxism or Liberationism or whatever entries that are related and read more. You can go to the Critical Theory entry and read more. You can go to the Conflict Theory entry and read more. I can't give you that. I'm not going to try to do that sprawling thing, but this is a feature I've intentionally built into the Critical Social Justice Encyclopedia on New Discourses so that you can see how interrelated these concepts and terms, these specialized uses or abuses, I should say, of language are so that you can actually understand that their abusive language isn't just a few tricky words. It's actually that they have an entire um, almost new dialect of English where words aren't pronounced differently, but they have slightly different meanings. Um, And these meanings are massively interlinked with one another and referential to one another. They've really built a completely new discourse That is hijacking our discourse, which is why I called the website new discourses because they've hijacked our discourse. Um, and that's actually going to be central to what the neo-Marxist project is. So, uh, their goal is actually to infiltrate things like institutions and change them from within. And they've done this, in fact, with our language. And the doing so through language is one of the main things. So you won't get the full benefit, though, of the Social Justice Encyclopedia. So if you haven't checked that out, you haven't referred your friends to so if you haven't spent some time, it's really kind of interesting and overwhelming to go on there and read an entry and then kind of click to another one and click to another one and click to another one and get about five or six deep. And I know this is a, you know some cases, this might be an afternoons project, but it really gives you some sense of just how profound and deep the abuse of language is. I don't want to say that their ideology is profound or deep, because it's actually not. I could teach you everything you wanted to know about it in probably under 24 hours one day. It's it's not complicated. It's not deep. And by the end of this podcast, you'll actually have a fairly robust understanding of a significant chunk of it. But... Uh, the abusive language that they have is profound. They've literally corrupted and subverted massive amounts of the language. And until we understand the way that those Mott and Bailey language games are being played so that we can steal their Mott and bomb their Bailey, as I've advocated before, we're not going to be able to fight back properly. We're not even going to be able to understand what these subversive activists are pulling on us. So without further ado, I'm not going to read the... Uh, well, I guess I will. The structure of the Social Justice Encyclopedia, uh, Critical Social Justice, so Encyclopedia on New Discourses is that I give an example of the usage in Social Justice literature, Critical Social Justice literature, before I give my own commentary, and then at the end sometimes I have additional examples, and in this case I have those, I'll actually read just what I'm going to have from those three examples, I think there are three, and then I'll go into my own commentary and read that in full. So. The first thing that I cite to show that they actually do think in terms of the neo-Marxist way to think is from a paper called Tr- Tracking Privilege-Preserving Epistemic Pushback in Feminist and Critical Race Philosophy Classrooms by Allison Bailey, published in Hypatia in 2017. And she's talking about the difference between critical thinking, which she says is concerned with epistemic adequacy, which is a fancy academic way to say knowing what you're talking about, And then she's comparing that against critical pedagogy, which incorporates the critical theory of education, which therefore incorporates critical race theory. And what she writes is critical pedagogy begins from a different set of assumptions from the critical thinking tradition that are rooted in in the neo-Marxian literature on critical theory, commonly associated with the Frankfurt School. Here, the critical learner is someone who is empowered and motivated to seek justice and emancipation. Critical pedagogy regards the claims that students make in response to social justice issues not as propositions to be assessed for their truth value, but as expressions of power that function to re-inscribe and perpetuate social inequalities. Its mission is to teach students ways of identifying and mapping how power shapes our understandings of the world, this is the first step toward resisting and transforming social injustices. By interrogating the politics of knowledge production, this tradition also calls into question the use, uh, the uses of the accepted critical thinking toolkit to dis- to determine epistemic adequacy. So she's setting critical. Race theory, for example, under the umbrella of critical theory and critical pedagogy, she's setting that aside from critical thinking, it's not the same thing, and she's actually telling you quite plainly that not only is this rooted in neo-Marxism, which she said explicitly, that it's also um, that the word critical has two meanings, a critical thinker and a critical thinker, where critical might mean critical thinking like we usually think of it, or critical thinking might mean using critical theory to think. And that's pretty tricky, isn't it? This is this how they abuse language to abuse power. Uh, second example, this isn't quite as explicit. It doesn't use the words neo-Marxism, uh, or the word, I guess. This is from Uslam Sensoy and Robin D'Angelo's Is Everyone Really Equal? An Introduction to Key Concepts in Social Justice Education. Um, and they write explaining that they're explaining where their approach comes from and i have it quoted out of the second edition i have the first edition sitting around here somewhere it's on page 50 in the second edition which i think is an interesting story in and of itself uh it's it's on like page five or something like that in the first edition so it was right front loaded in the book in the first edition and they moved it 50 pages in and buried this lead by the second edition um five years later Pretty interesting little story, but what do they say about their their assumptions, which they front-loaded in edition one, and they've tucked further into the book in edition two? They say, our analysis of social justice is based on a school of thought known as critical theory. Critical theory refers to a body of scholarship that examines how society works and is a tradition that emerged in the early part of the 20th century from a group of scholars at the Institute for Social Research in Frankfurt, Germany. Because of this, This body of scholarship is sometimes also called the Frankfurt School. These are the neo-Marxists, by the way. These theorists offered an examination and critique of society and engaged with questions about social change. Their work was guided by the belief that society should work towards the ideals of equality and social betterment. Many influential scholars worked at the Institute, and many other influential scholars came later, but worked uh, in the Frankfurt School tradition. You may recognize the name of, names of some of these scholars, such as Max Horkheimer, Theodor Adorno, Jürgen Habermas, Walter Benjamin, and Herbert Marcuse. Their scholarship is important because it is part of a body of knowledge that builds on other social scientists' work, Emil Durkheim's research questioning the infallibility of the scientific method, Karl Marx's analyses of capitalism and social stratification, and Max Weber's analysis Analyses of capitalism and ideology. All of these strands of thought built on one another. And for one further example, although I think that was quite clear, they never said neo Marxism, but they said Frankfurt School, they said critical theory, and they named most of the key neo Marxists. Although maybe Habermas counts as a neo Marxist, but I think that the neo Marxist line that we are interested in comes up to Herbert Marcuse, who would be the second generation, if you want, um, critical theorist, Horkheimer being, Max Horkheimer being a first generation, Marcuse taking the mantle of directorship of the Frankfurt School, being second generation, Jürgen Habermas becomes kind of third generation, but I don't think that Jürgen Habermas is nearly as interesting of a line in terms of what critical theory looks like, and in fact it became a lot milder under Habermas, but rather that it took the offshoot with Herbert Marcuse's student, Angela Davis. Uh, and so neo-Marxism took a hard left turn into radical activism with Angela Davis and the black feminists uh, and the black liberationists and radical feminists around them that took this stuff up. So that's the line that I think is the relevant one to get us to the woke world today. A third source, though, one of my favorites, of course, to quote from, Critical Race Theory and Introduction by Richard Delgado and Jean Stefancik. They write, As the reader will see, critical race theory builds on the insights of two previous movements, critical legal studies and radical feminism, to both of which it owes a large debt. It also draws from certain European philosophers and theorists, such as Antonio Gramsci and Jacques Derrida as well as from the American radical tradition exemplified by such figures as Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass, W.E.B. Du Bois, Cesar Chavez, Martin Luther King Jr., and the Black Power and Chicano movements of the 60s and early 70s. So key names here for neo-Marxism, key name, I should say, is Antonio Gramsci, uh, who is the father of cultural Marxism, which is more or less identical with neo-Marxism in most respects, but not all respects and then of course he mentions Jacques Derrida who is one of the he's the grand post structuralist which we would identify as being really a branch of postmodernism and so to see that critical race theory incorporates neo marxism and uh postmodernism into one thing is revealed here in this piece okay so now i'll read my commentary explaining where i think what i think neo marxism is um, And I will add my commentary as I need to go, I write, Neo-Marxism is a 20th century school of thought that sought to simultaneously critique classical Marxism while retaining many of its essential features in a new way. See also the German term, Alfhaben, which I've talked about many times. For example, Neo-Marxism seeks to retain the broadly socialist and communist project at its heart while approaching the issue culturally rather than economically and materially, which is why I say to see also cultural Marxism and liberationism here. So I will actually read most of these see also's that I put in the encyclopedia so you can get a sense of how these ideas connect to one another, even in audio form. It, I mean neo-Marxism, is associated with the Institute for Social Research at Goethe University in Frankfurt, Germany, the Frankfurt School, which developed it and is roughly the the philosophy advanced by the formal doctrine of critical theory, which it produced and applied. In that it both critiques Marxism while pursuing many of its aims, for example radicalism and sociocultural revolution, while using similar methods, for example critique and conflict theory, it is a Marxian theory that is not specifically Marxist. And it partially obscures, I put this in parentheses, it partially obscures its understanding, uh, its underlying, I'm sorry, partially obscures its underlying Marxian organization when convenient by highlighting that it criticizes classical marxism. So what you'll hear a lot from neo-marxist types or critical race theories say, "Oh, it can't possibly be Marxist. We we have a critique of marxism. Nobody critiqued the neo uh, the, nobody critiqued marxism harder than the neo-Marxists, or the, the the critical theorists. They were extremely critical of marxism. And isn't that tricky? Because when they say critical, there's that double meaning of the word critical. What they mean is they applied the dialectical process and changed it while keeping most of its essential elements. So it's technically not classical Marxism. It's done something different, and it has criticized aspects of classical Marxism while keeping its essential core. But then they can point at those criticisms and say, see, we're not actually Marxists. And then the Marxists play useful idiot to this by pointing at it and saying, yeah, see, they criticized us. It's totally different. This is not what we had. They're not purists. These newfangled, they are distinct from our tradition. And then people buy this where the essential core is still the same, even though they've now diverged and are, are mostly talking about where they're targeting their, their criticisms. So back to my my essay. Some of its more prominent and influential neo-Marxism. Some of its more prominent and influential thinkers included the Hungarian communist George Lukacs, the Albanian-Italian communist Antonio Gramsci. See also Gramscian. The German critical theorists Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno, and Herbert Marcuse. See also repressive tolerance. And arguably black feminists like Angela Davis. See also abolitionism and Black Lives Matter. So you hear there's lots of connections here, but this is the line that I think is relevant. You'll notice I did not mention Jurgen Habermas and I went in the direction of Angela Davis, as I was just describing a moment ago. Uh, I think that is the track that the relevant strain of neo-Marxism followed and while Habermas's philosophy may be very interesting in many ways and his critical theory might be interesting in very many ways, I think it's also a red herring to what's going on in the world today in terms of all of this crazy activism. I go on, Neo-Marxism is characterized by a few traits that render it identifiably Marxian while divergent from classical Marxism. Perhaps chief among these distinctions is the rejection of the historicism in Marx's dialectical materialism, which appeared to have been falsified by the early 1920s, and the shift away from Marx's strict reliance upon material determinism by including also the analyses of cultural factors, and in particular the Gramscian idea, of the role played by cultural hegemony, which is roughly soft systemic power. So I did a podcast already about Leninism. What did I call it? Wokeness is Leninism 4.0 and Antonio Gramsci is at the center. So I think it's Antonio Gramsci and Wokeness as Leninism 4.0 or something like that as a title. And so I describe how Gramscian thought the birth of cultural Marxism takes classical Marxism in a completely different direction. It starts with a very deep critique of Marx um, I'll talk about the history further down in this, so I'm not going to elaborate on it here, but if you want to learn more about the Gramscian idea and cultural hegemony, and that's role, uh, its role in, in the production of the woke movement, I encourage you to go check out that podcast as well. Continuing, this has led Neo-Marxism to be rightly identified as cultural Marxism, which is to say the conflict theory-oriented approach central to Marxian analysis applied at the level of cultural institutions rather than to the means of economic production. So if you are a surfer of New Discourses, you should definitely go and check out the Cultural Marxism entry. Wikipedia removed their actual Cultural Marxism uh, entry, so Wikipedia is like trying to cover up what Cultural Marxism really is to kind of hide this ball. So I put one on New Discourses that covers what it used to cover but in more depth and more clarity. The key here though is that they are continuing that conflict theory oriented approach. So again, conflict theory is another concept in the encyclopedia that you should go check out. The short version of what that means because it's important to understand to go on. Conflict theory says that society is stratified. We actually heard that from Sensoy and D'Angelo, if you recall, he actually said the words that that we're talking about the study of the stratification, Marx's study of the stratification of society. So Marx's idea was that society is stratified into two primary economic classes, which are the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. All of these other neo-Marxist and woke theories stratify societies across various, uh, along, I should say, various lines of systemic power. So in critical race theory, the line is a white supremacist line, and they say that there are people with white privilege who are the equivalent of the bourgeoisie, who are stratified above people of color who in turn are, have a hierarchy of identity that puts black and indigenous at the bottom or whatever. So stratification means like that there's layers of society. These are said in this Marxian conflict theory to go along lines of power that are produced by the people in charge. The people are privileged and advantaged by the system of power, the bourgeoisie. Who then wish to maintain it, and that they are intrinsically in conflict with one another across that line of that oppressor versus oppressed line. So when you hear that Marxism has an oppressor versus oppressed heartbeat or whatever at its center, that it has its core is oppressor versus oppressed mentality, what they're referring to is conflict theory. And in particular, Marx believed, and the neo-Marxists believed in his wake, and the woke believe in his wake, that these conflicts are zero-sum. So that if one Group in this stratification of society benefits, the other has to pay the price. Okay, so picking back up, though neo-Marxism retains its focus on the capitalist bourgeoisie, so it's not specifically identity political, at least not until the black feminists like Angela Davis and her crew picked it up. Though Neo-Marxism retains its focus on the capitalist bourgeoisie, it shifts its attention to matters of cultural production like the maintenance of bourgeois values through pop culture and consumerism, and thus the general dulling of the population, rather than on the capacity of the producing class to enforce its will upon society and the oppressed proletariat. These are usually referred to as the middle and working classes in Neo-Marxism. And it's thought, it's thought to be done through economic oppression alone in classical Marxism. And neo-Marxism sees it culturally. So the neo-Marxist school, I write, arose by having to contend with the first wave of the catastrophic failures of Marxism. So this is where I'm going to get to that history. This is really important to realize that neo-Marxism grew out of seeing Marxism in its pure classical form, fail. So let me start this paragraph again. The neo-Marxist school arose by having to contend with the first wave of the catastrophic failures of Marxism, namely the failure of Marx's prediction that the advanced industrial capitalist societies would naturally give way to a workers' class consciousness, subsequent proletarian revolutions, and thus socialist states well on their way to communism. Rather than seeing leading industrial centers like London, Paris, Berlin, New York, and Chicago spontaneously undergoing these sorts of revolutions, however, only the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 in peasant-heavy Russia had succeeded. Lukács' own communist revolution in Hungary, soon after, took briefly and then fell apart within months. This left the communists of the 1920s with a puzzle to solve about what Marx got right and what he got wrong. And to oversimplify somewhat, the conclusion they drew was that Western capitalist societies produce and inscribe cultural power called hegemony that resists these revolutions, maintaining bourgeois power by effectively preventing the necessary class consciousness from arising in the working class at all and turning them into a revolutionary proletariat. So this is where the idea of cultural Marxism comes into play. Just to add some commentary staring at the failures of Marx's predictions that major capitalist industrial centers would tip over first and naturally into communism. In fact, that's exactly the opposite of what happened. They were left with a puzzle, plus the desire to make the West go communist, which appeared to be now impossible, and they had to try to figure out why. And what they concluded was that the culture of Western civilization, the values of Western civilization, and the institutions that reproduce those values must be the problem. Marx must have had the right idea at heart, but he was looking at it the wrong way. He was paying attention to the wrong thing. The means of economic production were not the actual thing. Something more cultural had, has something to do with it. And maybe it's not that the bourgeoisie are so much wrapped up in the idea of controlling the means of production and thus people, but rather the way people think life should be lived. And if they can control how people think life should be lived and what a good life looks like, then people won't become revolutionary and they'll accept their oppression and live in it. And so this is the big turn, this is their solution that they had. It turns out, because as I talked about in the GWF Hegel podcast I recently did, um the left moves dialectically, or leftism. I keep trying to to shift to leftism, but leftism has since Hegel has moved dialectically, which means that they're going to use, they're going to look at what Marx had, and they're going to do a dialectical process to it to change it. And what they ended up doing was retaining the essential conflict theory, retaining the essential idea that a revolution is necessary, and then shifting the focus out of uh, the economic domain and material domain and into the cultural domain. So this idea, meaning cultural Marxism at this point, and neo-Marxism, was largely due to the thought of Lukács and Gramsci, somewhat together with Max Horkheimer, who went on to direct the Frankfurt School by the mid-1920s. In that Institute for Social Research, the critical theorists would come into being by trying to adapt Marx's so-called critical philosophy under the growing developments in the early social sciences, especially Freudian psychoanalysis and Weberian sociology. We heard exactly that from the quotes that I read about it. Um, These were meant to refine and improve Marx's... And I'm going to butcher some German here. I didn't realize I was going to say it out loud when I wrote it. These were meant to refine and improve Marx's Wissenschaftlicher Sozialismus... I can't even do it... i.e. scientific socialism. Indeed... It has been said that theirs was a project, meaning the Neo-Marxist, was a project of marrying Marx and Freud, which obtains its apogee in Herbert Marcuse's 1955 book Eros and Civilization, in which he essentially argues that Western societies oppress people by getting them to suppress and subvert their own id, especially their libidos, and turn it into productive work, which is then exploited by the producing classes of society and which therefore could be liberated. This is really kind of one of the birthplaces, not of liberation movements, but of the line of thought of liberation that Marcuse was pushing that grafted itself into those. So this led them to develop a key concept of neo-Marxist thought, namely false consciousness which could be contrasted against a critical consciousness that results from applying critical philosophy to the facts of one's life and thus generating awareness of one's subordination and oppression by the consumerist capitalist societies characterizing the rapidly developing West. So this idea of false consciousness, by the way, is super important. So the whole next part of this is dedicated to diversion into it, but I have my own entries for critical consciousness, And class conscious or sorry, critical consciousness and false consciousness, which are already written on the encyclopedia, so you'll want to check those out. Um I have not done Marxist class consciousness, but you can understand that critical consciousness is the extension, the neo-Marxist extension of class consciousness. And I think most of us understand class consciousness a little bit. Uh or you've even heard of feminist consciousness, which the Marxist feminists were talking about at the same time. And so it's an awareness of your oppression by class. And for the feminists, that meant your class as a a woman. And for the Marxists, that meant your class as working class. Um, And so critical consciousness expands this into the cultural domain and is going to be your oppression within the working or middle classes uh, as somebody who's being exploited by the people who are the most elite in society to keep you dull and dumb and unable to think for yourself so that you will not have your... um, your own thoughts and be able to to therefore be revolutionaries. Critical consciousness is waking up to that and having a more multi-dimensional line of thinking as they had it. So this doctrine I write of false consciousness, which Mark and Friedrich Engels mentioned, but did not develop or significantly employ, enabled the neo-Marxists. So if you didn't know that, by the way, Marx and Engels, Engels being Marx's little sidekick with lots of money and more literary talent, um, Marx and Engels mentioned false consciousness, I think once or twice or three, it's a very few times in all of their writing. Um, so they did mention the concept that the people who, you know, many people within the working class have a false consciousness of what it means to be working class. So they're not a proletariat. They're not awakening to class consciousness and becoming a revolutionary proletariat, but they didn't really dive into it. Theirs was not a particularly psychological theory. It was a very material theory. And so this is where that shift into the psychological domain becomes very relevant to neo-Marxism. And they focus very heavily on false consciousness. So this doctrine of false consciousness enabled the neo-Marxists to relocate the source of the maintenance of the oppressive capitalist society inside the heads of everyday people who, not realizing better, would vote and buy and work against their own interests because they do not have the the, the necessary critical consciousness to know what their actual interests are Or that these have been supplanted by bourgeois and capitalist consumerist interests from heteronomous sources this doctrine is in an important sense the underlying assumption a doctrine of false consciousness is in an important sense the underlying assumption of all of neo-marxism and therefore the purpose of critical theory to awaken the unwashed masses to their real interests which just so happen to coincide perfectly with those the communist philosophers and activists who had taken up Neo-Marxism hold. In some sense, the essence of Neo-Marxist philosophy then is that advanced capitalist societies, as they become increasingly consumerist by means of tools such as advertising, propaganda, mixed economies, and popular culture, hide the true nature of oppression of the working and increasingly middle class from itself. And in fact, the emergence of the middle class was, a, was an alarm for the neo-Marxists, the middle class, which is, you know, kind of what we see as the backbone of the American dream. You get to be a middle class, you know, person. If you can work hard, do your job, suck it up, get your get your act together, you can you can join the middle class and have a comfortable, satisfying life. You're out of poverty. Right? And this was an alarm bell for the neo-Marxists because they saw that this emergence of mixed economies in the middle class as being something that would steal the revolutionary will from the from the poor working class who are otherwise going to be able to be made aware of their exploitation when when Lenin said that the more the people suffer the better because it will w- awaken their revolutionary will this is what they were referring to so the emergence of mixed economies which means economies that have some social elements to them social insurance programs for example that keep people out of absolute destitution the 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 um social security for example medicare these things very alarming the emergence of a stable growing middle class very alarming to the neo marxists because this will keep this will put people in a position where they are happy satisfied without having a total revolution of society that brings us to communism so for for the neo marxists the emergence of things like the middle class represent a horror show they represent the idea that the working class is now going to be brought into this kind of stupor and comfort and contentedness that will prevent it from ever wanting to overthrow society. People will be happy and then they won't want to overthrow society. That, that can't be good for the neo-Marxists. And so the heart of the neo-Marxian philosophy then is that There is this false consciousness about how good life is generated by all of these things and also advertising and propaganda and propaganda. Of course, uh, they have a point. (sighs) It does it does this, meaning it. uh, It um, takes up this this approach, um, the critical approach. It does this so that the working I'm sorry, I have that wrong. I lost my own train of thought. Um. It here is the advanced capitalist society Uh, does this so that the working and middle classes remain ignorant of their own subordination and generally happy and content with the lives that they might otherwise be miserable miserable about if they only understood them correctly, which is to say as the neo-Marxists understood it. This contentedness is a problem for neo Marxists because it undermines revolutionary will and tends to maintain the existing society in a relatively stable, mostly profitable way. See also status quo. So they don't like the idea that the society isn't going to undergo a communist revolution, and anything that will keep people happy and not revolutionary in a communist way is bad. And critical theory exists to tell them why their life is actually way worse than they think it is. And you can read this. At Extensively in say Herbert Marcuse's writing, who we're about to turn to, but if you go read my uh, or go listen to my four part podcast series where I read through all of repressive tolerance, you can catch this theme over and over and over from him. I have another couple of places where I've quote, quoted Marcuse or Marcusa uh, at length in um, on the New Discourse podcast. People find him quite upsetting. You can find where I've read actually about false consciousness quite a lot in another podcast I did. Uh, where I quote from One-Dimensional Man, for example, and you'll see that, yes, indeed, um, as a matter of fact, this false consciousness doctrine is central to the way they think, and the way that they think is that if people just didn't have false consciousness, if they could be awakened to how miserable their happy lives actually are, he actually says at one point that people are are made happy in their misery or something like that, Uh, then you could have a revolution. So the Neo-Marxists, I write Herbert Marcuse, second generation of the Frankfurt School, for example, referred to these capitalist manipulations as the various heteronymous interests, which mean multiple outside interests, for example, those of advertisers, employers, the country club, etc., that prevent everyday people from being able to think for themselves at all and thus realize the full extent of their servitude. That satisfied state of life, he believed, went on to maintain a state of interlocking systemic oppressions from which they could be liberated if only they might realize that they are not actually as content or happy as they are misled to believe themselves to be. This is really how Marcuse thought, by the way. Marcuse actually did think that people being made happy by living their everyday middle class lives was a form of tricking them into accepting a really bad lot. And that if you could just make them miserable about it and make them realize that they're actually miserable and exploited, then they would want to have a revolution and be liberated from this uh, terrible uh, condition of being content. False consciousness, I said, has evolved under neo Marxist and woke thought into doctrines of internalized oppression, for example, internalized racism, and internalized dominance, for example, meritocracy, which has a distinctly Freudian flavor and argues that people who are oppressed or who benefit from systemic power respectively rationalize the state of affairs as just, reasonable, and natural, and therefore accept it either against or in their own self-interests, usually outside of their own awareness. So um, I have entries for those. You should check those out. Uh, Internalized oppression, internalized dominance. That's kind of the key ways that wokeness thinks if you are white, if you benefit from whiteness, you've probably internalized your dominance and decided that it's natural through doctrines like meritocracy. If you are a minority under critical race theory, for example, you have, and you don't hate the society you live in, if you're not a critical race theorist, if you're, say, black and you don't like critical race theory, then you have internalized racism, which is a form of internalized oppression, which is that you've rationalized your oppression under this power dynamic, Usually through some kind of denial or some kind of uh, self-interest, like being a race trader or something like that. It's a pretty sick doctrine. Uh, so you should go check those out uh, and see how they think. This characteristic of neo-Marxism, meaning false consciousness again, is a tendency to think in terms of the system or systems, which represents virtually all of the aspects of the operation of a functioning capitalist society, see also superstructure, that's Marx's concept. This shift is consistent with the sociological dimension of its shift away from, from classical Marxism, which is to say away from the way that the capitalist producing class directly oppresses society and into the ways in which they are said to arrange society to keep people oppressed and contentedly participating in the system that they ultimately control. That is, where classical Marxism would insist that the bourgeoisie produces specific material conditions that keep the working class subordinate and under their control, the neo-Marxist analysis would say that the bourgeois class establishes and maintains the values, norms, and images that accomplish the same thing in a less direct way, though often using direct means such as propaganda and advertising as well. This control was believed to be produced and achieved in a variety of ways depending on the specific neo-Marxist thinker, but generally they would tend toward an analysis that believes the institutions of cultural production, which are in the control of the bourgeois class of society, are most relevant to the task. Gramsci explicitly named religion, family, education, media, and law as the primary institutions that uphold cultural hegemony, while the Frankfurt school thinkers were additionally very concerned with art and popular culture. The general strategy advocated throughout neo-Marxism is one that combines disruption, dismantling, and especially subversion rather than seizing, often by infiltrating an institution and taking over its cultural hegemony from within by establishing a growing counter-hegemony that will eventually supplant the original, see also Long March through the institutions. So, just to kind of like talk historically for a second here, Gramsci was not technically part of the Frankfurt School. I would say that given that he was the father of cultural Marxism, it would be fair to call him a neo-Marxist, uh, but he, did not, he was not part of the Frankfurt School. Uh, he did, however, meet with the members who went on to form the Frankfurt School, uh, notably at least once in Vienna in 1923, but I believe other times as well. Um, you know, Gramsci, though, went to prison in 1926 in Italy and he died in that prison. So he was not ever a member of the Frankfurt School, which was in Frankfurt, Germany, and not in, a, in an Italian prison. So Gramsci met with people like Lukács and Max Horkheimer, and these guys were, were writing and talking with one another and formulating these ideas. Uh, Lukács was already talking about the need for Aufheben der Kulter, which is to say, to translate Aufheben... Um, one way, abolish the culture, meaning if you want to achieve a a revolution, we're going to have to abolish the culture. Um, Gramsci, of course, was taking this very far, and he wrote that mostly while he was in prison, Uh, between 1926 and 1937. And then the Frankfurt School, I don't know when they would have got a hold of Gramsci's writings from prison. They went to Moscow in 1937. I don't know what happened to them from there until they start to reemerge in various spectral forms in the 1960s. It's probably the case that 1960s Marcuse had seen them. It's almost certainly the case that Paulo Freire in Brazil had seen them. It's plausible, if not probable, that Mao Zedong in China had seen them, because the saying now is that Mao did what Gramsci thought. Mao, being a member of the Communist Party, would have had access to things that were housed in Moscow. So it's not quite clear what happened to Gramsci's writings, but it's certainly not the case that the prison notebooks, as they're called now, would have been available to say Max Horkheimer by 1937, since they were still in an, Albanian pri- or, sorry, an Italian prison. Uh, In 1937, when Horkheimer wrote uh, critical and traditional theories and outlined the idea of critical theory. So, there is some connection between these characters. I think that putting them under the neo Marxist umbrella is certainly okay, but I don't want people to come away with this misimpression that I believe that Gramsci was a member of the Frankfurt School, which he certainly was not. But he did work with the people who founded the Frankfurt School, and the ideas were in circulation largely at the same time. The long march of the institution was named by a German communist Rudy Deutschke, and Deutschke uh, was watching Mao. I don't know if Deutschke had read Gramsci or not, but it referred to the same strategy, which was to infiltrate institutions and establish an internal counter-hegemony. So this is that subversion of Neo-Marxism, it's to get inside, maybe you change the language when you get in there. Maybe you change of the norms, maybe change the values, but you're going to enter into the cultural institutions, and again, Gramsci named family education, media, uh, family, religion, media, education, and law. Um, you're going to get inside those, you're going to change them and you're going to start pushing these neo-Marxist values or neo-Marxist analyses, critical theory from within until finally the whole thing kind of flips over and you see this happening one institution after another and probably most damagingly our education system our media and our our schools of higher education our universities so for many i write for many of the neo-marxist thinkers especially those affiliated with the frankfurt school then a study of aesthetics gained renewed interest so we just talked about uh, religion family education media and law and you could say it's under media but aesthetics there's a lot of interest in art when you start reading some of these Neo-Marxists. You read Marcuse, you read Horkheimer, you read Adorno. They're all concerned with aesthetics, they're all concerned with art. Um, so aesthetics takes on a very important dimension. Of course, they're looking at propaganda as well, and aesthetics are important to propaganda. So for many of the Neo-Marxist thinkers, especially those affiliated with the Frankfurt School then, a study of aesthetics gained renewed interest, this not being a particularly important concept in classical Marxism which didn't really care how anything looked, and that's why everything they do is ugly. Therefore, a focus on aesthetics and its role in producing or subverting a culture is a central theme in many of the works of the neo-Marxist thinkers, especially especially notably Herbert Marcuse and even more Theodore Adorno. Popular culture, propaganda, advertising, and the difference between art and anti-art were said to be replacing high culture and genuine art, and this was keeping working people in a state of low awareness, unconsciousness, false consciousness, and yet an unhappy contentedness, unhappy as in scare quotes, that hides from them the true nature of their oppression by an elite class who retains these elements of the good life exclusively for itself, while becoming while also becoming unmoored from the kinds of values that should accompany such nobility bitterness and resentment at the state of Weimar, Germany, that is decadent largesse. I said that badly, I'll say it again. That is decadent largesse, in which many of the neo-Marxists spent their formative years and the catastrophes that followed, namely especially World War II, uh, are definitely felt in these criticisms, perhaps most especially Theodore Theodor Adorno's stinging critiques of jazz. So what I'm saying in that part is, you know, trying to keep it kind of tight for Encyclopedia. The neo-Marxists were really concerned about the effects of pop culture. Theodor Adorno absolutely hated jazz. If it wasn't like the highest of high classical music and he was a classically trained composer, um, then it was garbage and probably destroying society in some way. But it can't be missed that these guys grew up in Weimar Germany, which was a hotbed. of just It was like the most decadent, ridiculous, culture ever. And the jazz clubs of Berlin were famous. You know, it was like flapper city. And then all of a sudden the whole society, which is way too decadent, falls apart and the Nazis take over. And like, this is, they're all Jews also in the Frankfurt school, by the way. So they're looking at this, like you have to pay attention to the historical relevance that watching Weimar Germany go into absolute decadence and then collapse. And the decadence is all in the veins of these popular, fun things like dancing and jazz and fun music and mu- all these kinds of just vir- burlesque shows and all of this stuff. You have to see that as having been very formative on their thought. And one of the things that they're very interested in, as we're going to talk about just in a moment, is the, how did the Nazis rise? Where did fascism come from? And they're going to have looked at that backdrop and been angry about it and said, well, that popular culture getting out of control. Created those conditions. So, the historical relevance, I write, of the Weimar Republic on the thinking of many of the neo Marxists brings to bear another historical fact that profoundly influenced the development of neo Marxism, namely the World Wars. Most of the neo Marxist thinkers grew up during World War I. Virtually all of them, as a matter of fact, were born at the end of the 19th century and were young children as the 20th century, very young in some cases, as the 20th century dawned they lived through world war 1 in germany then they lived through the weimar republic and then they saw the advent of world war II. And this is the context in which they're writing as german jews who are also much more importantly communists so much of the neo or sorry most of the neo marxist thinkers grew up during world war 1 lived through weimar the weimar republic and then saw it collapse as the national socialist party nazis Inevitably seized power and initiated World War II. Being that most of the neo Marxists and nearly all of the Frankfurt school members were, in addition to being neo Marxist communists, Jews, they would have been acutely aware of the rise and horror of the Second World War and the Nazi Party, not least because it displaced them from Frankfurt and via Geneva into the United States. So they were chased out of Frankfurt. They went to Geneva, Geneva, Switzerland very briefly and then bounced to the United States to get out of Dodge as far as possible. Um, So they're going to be very aware of the very vigorously anti-Semitic fascism that was rising up in Hitler's Nazi party. They're also going to be aware of the fascism that was happening in Italy. Remember, uh, the fascist party of Italy threw their buddy Antonio Gramsci into prison. Why? On the pretext of stopping his brain working for 20 years, they said. And they got 11 of them. No, sorry, they got 9 of them. For 11, he wrote. And his brain worked just fine and probably worked too well. So they got 9 of those 11 years. Um, So of primary relevance to the development and expression of Neo-Marxist thought then, not just the Weimar Republic but of primary relevance to the development and expression of neo-Marxist thought then are the rise of fascism and the role that allegedly enlightened science and technology played in the horrific brutality of those two large-scale modern wars. So that sentence downplays it a lot. The World War 1 and 2 were pretty awful. <laughs> grotesquely awful. And a lot of it had to do with technology. You are no longer having man on man fighting with swords, which is very barbaric or whatever, but now you have trenches in World War I. You have machine guns, you have aircrafts, you have firebombs, you have napalm, you have gas. If you've ever read the famous poem, Wilfred Owens' Dulce et Decorum est, you should. And you can read just how horrific gas is a gas attack. This is all technology. The concentration camp, the gulag, these are the products of high technology tanks. This is the product of high technology. The nuclear bomb, this is the product of high technology. So enlightened rationalism and its glory of science and the high technology it produces become another backdrop for those things that the neo-Marxists are concerned about and writing about. It's also, at this point, by the time we're getting to the 1950s, we're starting to see there are horrors in Leninism and Stalinism that can no longer be denied. So I go on to write, the unbelievable horrors of communism under Lenin and Stalin. And the roles propaganda and technology played in perpetrating those catastrophes of bureaucratic socialism, that's a Marcusean phrase, also did not escape their minds thus further moving them away from vulgar Marxism and also the so-called stagism of Lenin. These forces led neo-Marxist thinkers to position themselves, at least to themselves, as the genuine front of anti-fascist thought. And that's really, if you get into Herbert Marcuse's repressive tolerance, that's the whole thing, right? He's like, we're in an imminent state where fascism's going to erupt at any moment because fascism has come into the world and it could come out any minute again. So fascism was something very close to their mind. Fear of fascism was very close to their mind and for good reasons. And that analysis is going to be right behind their, their like one step behind most of their thought. And they position themselves as the people who are most truly against fascism and that had to position them naturally against enlightenment, rationalism, and science as well. So we get to that point. So in that, as I write again, in that neo-Marxism retained from Marx his line of dialectical thought, which he derived from Hegel, they analyzed these developments through that lens. And in 1944, updated in 1947, the most comprehensive summary of the neo-Marxist mindset was published by Max Horkheimer and Theodor Adorno under the title, The Dialectic of Enlightenment, or as I read recently, it can be translated as The Dialectic of Reason. Speaking broadly, the thesis of that work and thus an essential core of neo-Marxist thought, is that reason itself progresses dialectically, that is, by encountering its own contradictions and shortcomings, and then trying to resolve those synthetically. And it progresses from reason into unreason, including fascism, brutality, and a new kind of scientistic superstition or myth, which it claims to deny at a fundamental level. This work... Thus, neo-Marxism must be understood as a profound rejection of liberalism and enlightenment rationalism. So the the thesis, really, of Dialectic of Enlightenment is that, the, that reason itself eventually becomes its opposite. It eventually becomes irrationality and unreason. It eventually takes on all of the... it becomes fascism. It becomes the failures of Marx's uh, scientific socialism, which starts running people into the blender under, under Lenin and Stalin. So reason becomes unreason. And this is, this is for them because they think dialectically the natural progression, thesis meets antithesis. And so they have to find some kind of a synthesis that's going to come out of this. And that's the goal of dialectic of enlightenment is to point out though, that the enlightenment tradition has failed. It is a properly counter enlightenment book that liberalism has failed. It is a properly counter-liberal or anti-liberal position. They have instead in mind for themselves something like an ideal democracy. This is something that Marcuse wrote about extensively, that an ideal democracy can only arise when the forces of oppression and and repression are contained and, and overcome. So until you get rid of all of the systems of power so that everybody is genuinely and truly equal, you can't have a true democracy. You can't have true Liberal or liberation, really, but you can have true freedom in which a proper, actual democracy would work. This is is something they imported from communist thought as well. Until everybody is truly and fully and absolutely perfectly equal, democracy isn't really democracy. So, back to the dialectic of enlightenment, I write this work represented a culmination of a growing vein of critique in neo Marxism against the philosophical position of positivism and objectivity by extension. The philosophical annihilation of which one might reasonably conclude is the genuine underlying project of Neo-Marxism itself. So what I'm saying there is that Neo-Marxism on some important level exists to obliterate the philosophy of logical positivism. It is a reaction, a hard reaction to logical positivism, which was claiming that only through empirical investigation and strict logical formalism can we claim to know anything, and it was a failure in and of itself. So in short, the dialectic of enlightenment ends in one form of fascism or another, and thus the worst forms of, and I'm saying the dialectic of enlightenment as a thing, not as the title of the book. It doesn't, the book doesn't end in fascism. They're saying that enlightenment itself as a dialectical process ends in fascism of one form or another, and thus the worst forms of brutality human beings have ever visited upon one another with the potential for global catastrophe, say in the nuclear armed cold war, rapidly (coughs) increasing to an existential degree. Positivism, which rejected aesthetics and specifically Jewish mysticism, entirely, as well as Alfhaben-based dialectical thought, not incidentally, was viewed by the neo-Marxists as a chief philosophical villain in this tragic and horrifying tale. So positivism certainly isn't going to truck with myth, and they wanted to react against that. And if you read some of the early neo-Marxists, especially Walter Benjamin, but you see it also in Dialectic of Enlightenment from Horkheimer and Adorno, there is the elevation of Jewish mysticism in particular uh, as a way to combat, in fact, the dialectic of enlightenment kind of gives, although they're pretty pessimistic, Jewish mysticism, and that's why I bring that up. Uh, the positivists weren't, were, were against religious superstition of all types. They weren't particularly anti-Semitic. But Jewish mysticism is specific to the dialectic, dialectic of enlightenment uh, as one of the core components of the antidote, they said, to the problem of of enlightenment or of reason. So one reason I write neo-Marxists rejected positivism that cannot be overlooked, as just indicated, is that it left no room for the dialectical program at the heart of their entire line of thought, or religion, if we believe Antonio Gramsci's remark that socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. Indeed, while the neo-Marxists diverged from Marx and have been said to have sought to wed Marx to Freud, one of the primary projects was also to peel back the capital oriented later analyses of Marx and return them nearer to his manifesto and earlier Hegelian roots. In that regard, neo Marxism might be more accurately identified as a strain of neo Hegelianism with Marxist characteristics. To borrow some phrasing from Mao Zedong, whom whom the, uh, speaking of Mao, whom the neo-Marxists generally supported once he arrived on the scene as a significant player in China. So they didn't realize how badly that was going until much later. Um, They did support the Chinese Chinese revolution. Marcuse writes about it kind of cringy style over and over again, as a matter of fact. Angela Davis was a big supporter of it as well. So then I go on specifically. So let me frame out the thesis of this paragraph again real quickly. The neo-Marxists wanted to keep doing the dialectic, Logical positivism destroyed the idea of dialectical thought. In fact, analytic philosophy, which grew out of that, is the opposite in a very real sense when it's actually analytic philosophy. It's not some corrupted analytic philosophy that's actually doing uh, dialectic. Analytic philosophy actually was the uh, w- w- is pretty strongly opposed to the dialectical process. Bertrand Russell, who was a logical positivist, wrote some of the most scathing critiques absolutely just vicious critiques of Hegel and his entire program, and that the dialectic is just a bunch of uh, fluff and magic, and it's not real, and it's a terrible way to do everything. And so my feeling is that the neo-Marxists wanted to recover their dialectical faith from the positivists who were completely destroying it. In particular, analytical philosophy is something that it, as continental philosophy, is opposed to. Okay, so specifically the development of cultural Marxism, which is effectively synonymous with neo-Marxism at the operational level, could be seen as a partial return to Hegel's original purpose with the dialectic, meaning return from what Marx had done with it by the time he got to the right point of writing Kapital. Uh, Communist Manifesto is a much more Hegelian work. *Capital* uh, is um, he's very deep in his economic analysis by that and which is materialist analysis um, in the Material conditions of life, not philosophical materialism, way of 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 looking at it, and so they the the neo Marxists basically said that's where Marx went wrong. He should have stayed more Hegelian. He should have stuck with the more Hegelian approach. So they want to recover this. Um, so Hegel's approach was, as I write, to examine ideas, philosophy, and reason, not material conditions. By locate, and, and the synthesis the neo Marxists offered is that to, to locate those in a semi-material way in the culture. Of a given society, which I say you should read as the Geist. So it's not a traditional way to translate the word Geist, uh, which is a Hegelian concept. Hegel saw that you have um, the ideas of society, the material aspects of society, and then you could kind of do a synthesis of those into the spirit of society, the Geist of society. And so I say that that manifests as culture. I think that makes a lot of sense. And the Neo-Marxists basically took the analysis where Hegel had the analysis in ideas. Marx said, no, 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 that's totally upside down. It's standing on its head. It's caught up in a mystical shell. Those are actual Marxist phrases. Uh, We're going to stick it in the material conditions of life where it really matters. And then the Neo-Marxists said, no, that's not right. We're going to put it in the geist, in the culture of society, in the the pieces of society, the norms, the values, the soft power, the way that people live their lives. We're going to put it there instead. Then I write, kind of in parentheses, or actually just in parentheses, someone who understands Hegelian thought might therefore recognize neo-Marxism as a dialectical synthesis of Hegel's idealist and Marx's materialist approaches to the dialectic itself. So it's a dialectical progression of the dialectic, which can be found reflected throughout the neo-Marxist literature ever since. As for the relevance to the theory of critical social justice, so this is the last paragraph in my entry, I've kind of framed out what Neo-Marxism is, but now I have to show that it, because it's about translations from the Wokish, is the name of the encyclopedia, so I have to link it back to that, so now we're going to talk about the uh, theory of critical social justice in the last paragraph. As for Neo-Marxism's relevance to the theory of critical social justice, it would be largely accurate to say that Neo-Marxism, thus critical theory and cultural Marxism, are something like the underlying operating system for critical social justice, or at least some of its theories, especially critical race theory, though perhaps less queer theory. So what I mean there, critical race theory growing out of critical legal studies and black liberationism, which has a line very deeply and very kind of straight line, Angela Davis, Herbert Marcuse's uh, rallying of the racial minorities, his black liberation work that he tied into, there's a very straight neo-Marxist line in critical race theory. Queer theory emerged out of kind of a very postmodernizing or post-structuralist take on feminism, which had neo-Marxist elements to it, but really adopted the postmodern trajectory more than it did the neo-Marxist elements. So though neo-Marxism is still present and felt in queer theory as well, but queer theory and critical gender theory are going to be much more, relatively speaking, postmodern projects than they are going to be neo-Marxist projects. So I continue... What is on this platform, meaning new discourses, what is on new discourses named critical social justice is effectively neo-Marxism that has taken up various aspects of postmodernism and post-structuralism in ways useful to its activism. See also praxis, especially with regard to the nature of knowledge and beliefs about how power operates in society. What Jordan Peterson identified as postmodern neo-Marxism and what the author, together with Helen Pluckrose, identified as applied postmodernism. An astute reader who understands Hegelian thought, same wry parenthetical here, might therefore recognize critical social justice as a dialectical synthesis of critical theory and the post-Marxist or rather post-Hegelian social constructivism of postmodernism, with that synthesis going formally by the name of critical constructivism, which if you don't know that is the formal name of what's going on in critical social justice. So that's the end of the entry. I want to kind of linger for a second on um, that comment I made about the nature of knowledge and beliefs about how power operates in society. So like I, I mentioned at the beginning, there's this young adult um, adaptation of Cynical Theories coming out this fall. You know, stay tuned. I, I will let you know soon as it is uh, order available for pre-order and you can start signing up for that. It's very readable. I read through the entire thing actually for the first time. The other day in a handful of hours and I had to edit it. So it's certainly an afternoon's read. It's a wonderful little read. And I encountered again, Helen's very persuasive argument, this I was saying at the beginning of the podcast, Helen's very persuasive argument that the postmodern conception of power and knowledge are so intrinsic to critical social justice that it's not possible to separate. It's not possible to separate fully the postmodern element and say, no, this is neo-Marxism. It has a very real postmodern element. And so this is where this parenthetical becomes important. So I'll wrap up by doing this. And I talked about it in the GWF Hegel podcast as well. Uh, Again, the parenthetical reads, an astute reader who understands Hegelian thought might therefore recognize critical social justice as a dialectical synthesis of critical theory and the post-Marxist or post-Hegelian social constructivism of postmodernism. So just a quick kind of little historical piece here to kind of put more of the pieces of the puzzle together. What you had, and, you know, it's a, maybe a topic to go into full detail in another day. I had this conversation, and it'll eventually come on video with Stephen Hicks as well, uh, fairly recently. What you had is the Neo-Marxists saw, uh, the Neo-Marxists were trying to reformulate Marxism with so- social science, basically, to figure out how to make it work, and then moving it into the, the sphere of culture. And then the postmodernists, the postmodernists emerged in the 1960s. At this point, the failures of of Marxist Leninism were undeniable. The failures of Stalin are undeniable. Why? Because uh, Nikita Khrushchev had succeeded Stalin in the USSR and had come out and just confessed to all of Stalin's crimes. You can't, if you have the pr- the, the new premier of the Soviet Union telling you all of the horrific things that his predecessor did. It's very difficult to deny, especially when there are already rumors of these things going on, and so they were they were looking at the abject failure of classical Marxism. We're talking about the postmodernists now, and even Theodor Adorno. By the time he's writing Negative Dialectic, it's obvious that he's pretty despairing of those projects. You can tell in Herbert Marcuse's. Uh, essays, especially his essay on liberation in 1969, when these things become un, have, been, have become completely undeniable, that he's talking about the failures of bureaucratic socialism. And so now he's not focused on communism, he's focused on liberation. It's this new thing, except it's really not a new thing. So you can see this kind of shifting to a post-Marxism. So what is post? Post is like the dialectical antithesis of the original thing it retains some of the original features but at the same time it negates most of it it's a despairing giving up on that thing it's a despairing giving up on that thing so you have the postmodernists and i think i write this in cynical theories originally are looking at the state of the world in the 1960s they're looking at the collapse of colonialism they believe in the failure of liberalism they hate capitalism most of them were communists or very close to being communists certainly communist friendly all of them were they are not liberals, they're not capitalists, but they're looking at the failures of communism, and there's you just have to admit at this point, the reports, they're at first very positive about Mao and the reports out of China by the mid-19, uh, I guess the late 1960s at least, are starting to get ugly. Um, It's, again, those same kind of rumors, but in light of what's going on, it's not, you know, a lot of what was in China was still secret, but in light of what was happening in the Soviet Union or becoming known about the Soviet Union, you couldn't really deny that maybe these are plausible rumors, and they became very disillusioned, very pessimistic. They're also French, so they're also very heavily influenced by existentialism. They're also very linguistic because they're influenced by structuralism. Uh, the structuralism that was was very popular there at the time. And they have this completely different way of thinking about power, but they're also very despairing, so they're post-Marxist. they a very different view. And that post-Marxist view could be viewed as deconstructive, rather than take the thesis of the dialectic and meet it with its antithesis, and then try to figure out some synthetic whole that contains both, while transcending them at a higher level, Alfhaben, to to abolish, to maintain, and to lift up above. Alf Haben, literally Haben is is uh, if I'm I think is is to is lift and uh Alf is up. So to lift up, to elevate, sublate is the is the Marxist word for this. Destroy but lift up to a higher level. Higher level of understanding. Um they were like the the postmodernists and even Adorno by nineteen sixty six and negative dialectic were like nope. Adorno said there is no way to positively cast the utopia. You can only use negative thinking to get there. Deconstruct, 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 take apart the problems and the utopia might emerge. But there's no positive vision of such a thing. And for every positive vision will fail. That's the post-Marxist vibe. And so now you have a positive dialectic of Neo-Marxism and you have a negative dialectic deconstruction of postmodernism, and wokeness is the fusion of those. And the synthesis of those, we see what it looks like with wokeness, is critical constructivism, where we are now going to accept that everything is socially constructed, that everything boils down to applications and uh, of power, that's our so-called postmodern knowledge principle, even knowledge itself is power, as we write in cynical theories. And yet we still have to do the critique. Uh, and so rather than trying to deconstruct the foundations of the problematics. We're now going to deconstruct the problematics themselves because we must accept the uh, underlying premises. So sometimes you're going to see positive dialectic, sometimes you're going to see negative dialectic, and sometimes you're going to see just kind of a speak out of both sides of your mouth operation on this. For example, kind of a good example of this, somebody asked me a couple of examples, maybe it was it's whiteness. Um, white people, have whiteness by virtue of who they happen to be. You read in uh, Applebaum that with whiteness, there's there's no real distinction, no meaningful distinction between being and doing. Well, who you are and what you do are intrinsically tied up, and it is explained in this doctrine she gives as complicity, which is a synthesis, a dialectical synthesis of being and doing. So white people are complicit in racism, or in other words, are racist by virtue of being white, but it's not because they're white. It's because whiteness has certain benefits to it, but those benefits can't be renounced. So it is because they're white, but it's not because they're white, but it is because they're white, but it's not, but it is, but no. not, but it is, but not, but it is, but not, but it is. Vicki Pollard. So yeah, but no, but no, but yeah, but yeah, but no. Um, and they get to do this. They get to get away with it because that's how it works. The Same thing goes with blackness right? Kimberly Crenshaw's I am black is different from I'm a person who happens to be black. So blackness is socially constructed, but because blackness is imposed, blackness becomes real, but it's not real, but it's real, but it's not real, but it's not real, but it's real, but it's real, but it's not real. And you get to use both at the same time. Well, you can't treat me that way because blackness isn't real, but oh, but blackness is real when I want to use it for political purposes, for identity politics. So it's not real, but it's real, but it's not, but it's near, but it's not. And that's what wokeness looks like. It is a dialectical synthesis of positive and negative dialectic at the same time. Of of critique and uh, deconstruction at the same time. And when it feels like it doesn't make any sense, that's why. So, anyway, this has been a reading with lots of commentary from my new entry on the Social Justice Encyclopedia, the Critical Social Justice Encyclopedia, Translations from the Wokish, which appears on New Discourses. You should go check it out. Of the newest entry, at least when I'm reading this, which is Neo Marxism, I hope you'll check it out. I hope you'll check out the encyclopedia and the website. Because it's very important to understand it. You understand what Neo-Marxist philosophy is. You can understand a lot about the way the woke move without understanding its relationship to postmodernism. You can't understand it fully. But Neo-Marxism, I would say, is by far one of the most important things to to hit. And since cynical theories, if you've read cynical theories, if you're a James Lindsay fan girl or a boy, you've probably read cynical theories three or four, 7,000 times, 16, 19 times, 16, 19 readings of cynical theories. Um, if you have read it, then you've heard a lot about the postmodern side of this. We focused on the postmodern side of that in the book. So this is the neo-Marxist aspect. So if you understand both and you understand how they kind of just cheat and stick them together at, at whatever is the most useful way for them, for activism, in the dialectical way, of course, because leftism moves dialectically, then you understand what's going on with woke. And if you understand it, then you can start to try to fight it properly because when you understand something, you can cure it if it can be cured. So thank you for listening, and I will catch you on the New Discourses podcast next time.